says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. And it being a lovely Wednesday means that it's time for... News Team Assemble! So not only is the drama on tap in the NRL in the last few weeks, it is freely flowing and joining me to break it all down is my good mate, 60s. And after a healthy little pregnant pause, I might throw in the, how you doing, mate? Mate, I, I, I needed a how you doing because the soul has been in rehab this week. I've been applying the ice and rest and elevation to that 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 part of my soul that's all Parramatta because yeah. it, it took a took an absolute beating last yeah, Friday. It certainly night. did, and of course it couldn't be the NRL podcast without our good mate Spiro. How you doing, Big Fella? Great to be with you guys. Disappointing off the back of Friday night's performance. I'm with sixties and I've been resting the soul as well <laughs> this week. But I guess there's a, a lot to look forward to. Big game against the Bulldogs Saturday afternoon footy. Doesn't get much better than that. All right, we'll put the Parramatta talk on the back burner for now. We'll get to that at the end of the show because there is plenty to talk about across the NRL. Let's uh, head up the freeway to Newcastle where it seems that mess upon mess is just happening for the Novocastrians. It all started with the David Clemmer saga where he uh, allegedly uh, mouthed off at uh, Hayden Knowles, was it, boys? Uh, yeah. Mm. Hayden Knowles, which led to him having a show cause notice for the club, him being stood down from that the following game. And he now has a, a sort of half-disclosed injury, so he's out perpetually, it looks like. Uh, so that was one thing, and there was obviously some talk about that. We spoke about it. It was followed up with uh, Bradman Best and Anari Tuala being stood down this week uh, because they missed the team bus for the game last week. And then now we have the uh, footage that came out across the weekend of Calum Ponger, and I believe it was Kurt Mann uh, coming out of the, the loose or out of a cubicle at one of the Newcastle haunts uh, with uh, some foreign white substance uh, visible on their faces or something like that. I think it's fair to say that Peter Parr's walked into a real doozy at Newcastle, hasn't he? Yeah, I agree. I mean, Peter Parr is a, a fantastic guy, a great football manager. He's done it at a New South Wales Blues level and had a lot of success at the Cowboys. And I think that it was unfortunate for him that he came into it later this year, probably best to start with a clean slate season 2023 and, and go from there. But, yeah, the cultural issues continue at the Knights and it's not much of a surprise because, you know, the results are showing that something isn't right at mm-hmm. the club mm-hmm. and it's, it's, we're just seeing now all of it unravel, the behind the scenes and it's uh, it's disappointing, you know, because Newcastle fans love their footy. They show up whether their side win or lose. They're committed to the cause. But when the players aren't chipping in and buying in from a standards and a cultural point of view, it's disappointing and it really hurts fans and, when you talk about the, the the team standards missing the bus and being stood down, I, I think that's that's fair. You know, like the club are doing the right thing because they've got to set some sort of culture and precedent to go forward with, and they're they're making the right call on that. In terms of Callum Ponga and Kurt Mann, I mean, we can't jump at shadows. We have to wait and see what the NRL come back with. There are obviously drug tests which have been conducted and a lot of speculation around what happened in the cubicle, but. 
I think you've got to stand to uphold. That's the reality here. When you're an out-of-role player and you're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, there are standards you have to uphold when you're in public because you're a role model. And, you know, being off your face and having too much to drink and getting to the point where you need to go to the toilet because you're sick because you've had too much to drink, it's embarrassing, especially when it's your marquee player, Kalen Ponga. So if you're going to have a drink and get a bit loose, do it in private, but don't put yourself in the public frame to be exposed to criticism and fools with their mobile phones videoing this sort of stuff. That's another part of the problem. <laughs> because of the rise of social media and technology, yeah. this stuff's easily accessible. It's unbelievable. Yeah, well, I think one of the concerns is, well, first of all, when they, they put out the story, well, the father, his father put out the story that he'd been celebrating all afternoon on the uh, purchase of property or something like that and that he was being ill in the cubicle and, and uh, Kurt Mann was helping him. But he, he did come out, or both of them came out carrying their drinks from the cubicle, which was quite strange if you think they're in there, one of them's in there being violently ill. Yeah, exactly. And the other one's helping, and they've carried drinks into a toilet cubicle. Now, seriously, um, the, the, other, the other aspect, however, that I think is just as important is that um, there's talk that this actually coincided, that their festivities on that day um, were coinciding with the, the Knights playing. So they weren't watching their team in action. Now, you're talking about a team leader there who's being paid a million a season in uh, in Ponga. And, what, they're not interested in how the team goes? I, I, think, I think there's a message about how important the, the, the club is, the team is to certain players with something like that. Now, we don't expect, we don't know, you know, players that are out injured, if they're not at the game, they, you know, they might be at home. They mightn't even be watching. You know, that'd be terrible if they weren't because you'd think every player would be invested in the performance of their team. And if possible, they'd be at the ground supporting their teammates. I know they're up in, Queensland, uh, so maybe that wasn't going to be possible. But still, you, you'd think, wouldn't you, that the the a leader like Ponga would be mm-hmm. would have some level of interest in how the team goes. Uh, that that's to me. That's that's mind blowing stuff. And the that, other area where the Newcastle Knights themselves, like regardless of Callum Ponga and the individual criticism, the area where the club itself is drawing fire is that they've taken wildly inconsistent approaches to different players across those three different incidents. With David Clemmer, they've taken an incredibly hardline stance, uh, seemingly looking to force him out of the club or find a way to force him out of the club to get out of that contract, given that Clemmer's probably been underperforming relative to his cap hit. For Bradman, Best and Ari Tawala, in a vacuum, that is a completely reasonable response to take, right? You miss the team bus. You've let the team down in, in some capacity on game day. You miss a game next week. But you contrast that against the initial stance they took on Kalen Ponger and Kurt Mann when that video first came out and they had their initial wave of reaction to it. And they, they you know, were pretty steadfast in the fact that Kalen Ponger's captaincy wasn't at risk despite the uh, bad optics of the video. And it wasn't until the NRL actually intervened and interdicted with their uh, independent drug uh, unit who were coming out to test, like Spiro mentioned. They're going to be doing tests, and whether that's blood tests or hair follicle tests, I'm not sure, but we're going to wait and see what that means uh, because the NRL has a strike policy when it comes to internal drug testing. Uh, but, yeah, it just it's just how wildly different the uh, punitive response has been uh, for different players, depending on whether the club wants them, needs them, or wants to get rid of them. 
Yeah, it's there is obviously something that's amiss within that club. Now, uh, Spiro then uh, mentioned before about um, you know Peter Parr's walked in on a difficult in a difficult time, and he, he's coming in at the end of the year, and it's coming in at the end of a disastrous year that's lurching from from one um, uh, one issue to another. Would it have been better for him to come in in uh, postseason and start from scratch, almost give everyone a chance for a clean slate or not? I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a maybe this is a time where he can make a stand. Yeah, I think I think in that regard, you just want him in as soon as possible. You got to lance the wound, you know, get the poison out as quickly as possible. And for Newcastle, there's a lot of poison. Yeah, it 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 feels like um, he's he hasn't been allowed to have any settling in period. Oh God, whatsoever. <laughs> nope. Like nothing. No, no. You know, like uh, be able to put his favourite pens and um, ornaments and that on the desk and um, say hello to everyone and uh, you know get a, get a coffee cup ready and all that sort of stuff. It's like hit the ground running, mate. Yeah. You know? You you couldn't have asked for a, a tougher initiation into a club than that. And, My goodness. And Spiro mentioned it when he was talking uh, his initial response before, but Newcastle being one of the great underperformers in recent years, they had their real big downturn uh, in the early 2010s era where they won a couple of wooden spoons, and that was, you know, whatever. But they rebuilt, and they, they had some big signings and some good recruitment and good development, and it just it hasn't amounted to anything. They've got state of yeah. origin forwards. They've got, you know, one of the most dynamic young playmakers in Kaywin Ponga. They've they've had various different configurations in the spine, all of which have looked good with Mitchell Pierce, without Mitchell Pierce, et cetera, et cetera. And just at no point have they ever amounted to anything when it comes to threatening for the premiership. Yeah, I'm trying to think what the stat was that was put forward on three sixty last night about Ponga. It was something like he played 11 games last year from memory and 14 this year, but he's only finished seven. Jeez. And you look at, and you balance that against the size of his contract and the importance that they place on him as a player. And you think what's happening with value for money. I mean, this is, this is one of the debates that I would have uh, around the minutes that uh, Reg and Junior play in uh, Parramatta, in that they're highly paid, like, you know, between 650 and 800,000, wherever the figures, you know, drop in somewhere like that. But they're one of the highest paid props, uh, or the couple of the highest paid props in the game. And you want value from that. You want long minutes. Um, With, in terms of Kalen Ponga, you, you just want games out of him. I mean, we're talking about less than half a season last year and what seven finished games this year my goodness yeah the return on investment has been abysmal for Newcastle and you know some of it is out of your control because injuries are just a, a wild card factor when it comes to rugby league and professional sports in general but it, as a Newcastle fan you couldn't help but be frustrated looking at how the team has performed relative to how it should have performed in the last couple of seasons for sure yeah yeah absolutely of course, the Newcastle. I think I sorry, think Kalen's ripping off the night. Kalen's ripping off the nights a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's like I said, return on investment on these. You know, because as a club, you're looking to get value out of these players on the football field. Ponga is. You hear the word said all the time, but there's a lot of potential. But right now, there's not been much performance. 
You know, you get the odd in, in a state of origin this year. He was dazzling. He was outstanding. But for Newcastle, for the team that is actually paying his wages on the annual basis, geez, they've got to be frustrated. Well, he he big time. He, he's he's probably at close to the midpoint of his career uh, in terms of uh, playing years, and he's delivering like a player at that point in his career at origin level. And as you said, then, Forty, he's playing at a, a level of someone who's got a lot of potential in these NRL premiership. So, yeah, the, the, there's just not very much value at all that the Knights are getting out of him. Yes, sir. And uh, as I was trying to segue to you before, quite rudely, honestly, not letting you guys get your final say in, Newcastle aren't the only team dealing with constant drama right now. Uh, moving up to the Northern Beaches in Sydney, you know this all started going back to that pride or inclusion jersey a couple of weeks ago. But now we've got uh, it seems to never end because we've got uh, gang signs being thrown up or potential gang signs being thrown up. We've got the uh, certain players coming out in support of Manezi Finu on social media after he was convicted guilty of stabbing someone at the church. Where do you unpack the Manly situation? Because it feels right now, uh, you know, whereas Newcastle have an issue culturally on and off the field in terms of performance, right now with Manly, it feels like there is quite a significant divide within the playing group itself. For me, it's it's quite disappointing for Manly fans because when you look at it, you go back three or four weeks, we were talking about Manly potentially scraping into the top eight. They had some really good form heading into that Roosters game. But it's very, very similar to what happened with the Dragons last year and the, the barbecue dramas with Paul Vaughan and when it was lockdown and, and all those dramas. You know, one off-field drama or one situation can dismantle a club. And I think it's unraveled because you had the, the seven players sit out of that game because of the prior jersey. And then you had from there on the weekend, you know, the Manasi Fainu situation and gang signs being thrown up after tries are being scored by players. And it's it's quite uncomfortable, if you ask me, because it's moving away from the NRL being a, a family game. You know, when you start seeing those sort of symbols and Manasi Fain has now been convicted, he's going to go to jail and he's, he's done, you know, a, a terrible crime and he'll face his time behind bars. But I understand players, you know, defending their teammates. I get that. But in such a public forum on national television and, you know, in that way with the manly colours on your shirt, it's not right. It's it's not the appropriate way to be acting and it's dismantled their season. They're now uh, not going to make the finals or the top eight. They've had a bad run of form the last few weeks and it all started with that prior jersey situation and, and now we're seeing more sort of cultural issues and a bit of a divide, like you said, in the playing group. Now, we haven't heard specifically if there has been a divide in the playing group and a falling out and some players maybe not talking to each other. But it seems like from the outset there is some divide there. And it's disappointing for Manly fans because these guys were in contention for the top eight about a month ago. I think that is a terrific parallel that you've been able to draw there, Spiro, in making that comparison to the Dragons with the barbecue gate because that issue around the barbecue did create a divide within their team because you had certain players that went to that, then you had... Uh, certain players that were going to admit their presence there and others that weren't. And you just saw their season completely unraveled from that point when they themselves were well-placed and and should have made the finals before um, that 
cause them their season to unravel. So I think there's a great comparison there. And it's also right about the uh, being it, when you are on such a major platform of a national broadcast through um, uh, pay TV, um, when you when you're covered as prominently as it is on the nine network as well, and to have players celebrate with throwing up signs that uh, whether they're gang signs or not, they're interpreted as gang signs. That's the thing. Like people are interpreting it that way, whether it's whether it's technically some or not. It, it very much looked like the uh, postcode of Guildford. I worked out in Guildford for uh, decades and the postcode there's 2161. So it looked like there was the postcode being thrown up through the through the signs of uh, of Olakawatu. Um, there's, you know what? It's perception is everything. So if people are perceiving that that's what he's doing, then that's as good as doing it, isn't it? Like literally, yeah. when you if, if you're gonna if you're gonna do something like that, the other thing that goes hand in hand perception and everything is timing. And it comes yeah. on the back of that Pride or Inclusion jersey drama, you know, where, you, you know, it's the same people being involved. It's yep. it, it allows people to connect dots that may or may not need to be connected. Uh, and, you know, it just it compiles onto itself, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and look, that sort of stuff is no good for the game, for a start, because it, it sheds the wrong light on the majority of the players within the game. It sheds a bad light on people associated with the great game of rugby league. I'm sure sponsors, all the major sponsors, hated every moment of those sorts of images. And the thing is, because it's being done in, in with such a high profile, is that the media are going to jump all over it, as they have. So it's going to continue to uh, feature within the media. We're talking about it right now. Um, you can imagine, like, the overall game sponsors are going to hate it. You can imagine how the Manly sponsors feel, and I'm sure the Manly supporter base, the last thing that the that the Manly supporter base would be interested in is postcodes of Western Sydney suburbs being flashed up on the, the screen when their team scoring tries. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. I, I just, I, you know, like, if, if, I was, if I was a Manly supporter, I would have hated everything about that. Yeah. And the other thing, just quickly, 60s, you mentioned about the parallel between the Dragons and the Barbecue Gate, right? After that, you saw there was a divide amongst the playing group and a number of players actually left the club. You had Corey Norman, you had Paul Vaughan, you had Matt Dufty, all these guys that left the Dragons following that incident, right? And they were their hands were not necessarily forced. They were the ones that made the decision to move on. I mean, Paul Vaughan, it was a little bit different, but... We may see that. We may very, very well see that with Manly. And I would not be surprised, and I'll put it on the record here, that if some of those players decide to move on, leave the club, because there may be some sort of divide there and they might be better off at another team in the NRL. Well, do you know what? I, I think I think that's I think that's a, a call that's probably gonna be spot on. And and you know what? If it doesn't eventuate I actually don't think that's going to be helpful to Manly. I think it needs to happen. I think it needs to happen for Manly to heal. I I, mm. I can't see, and as talented as some players might be, if there's something that stinks in the culture, if the team can't come together, 
on certain issues, there needs to be a broom put through the place. There is something rotten in the state of Denmark. That's it. <laughs> yeah, so... That's it. Hey, you, but you, I you think it's... Look, when you look you. at... When you look at the Dragons, right, and you, you see that they put a broom through their ranks, I think it's done the world of good. And although they're not going to be a top eight team, I think they've improved quite a bit this year. And culturally, it's a better place because you get rid of someone like Corey Norman, who's a little bit toxic, and Paul Vaughan and Duffy, and it, it's it's done some good at the Dragons, and it'll pay dividends eventually. Yeah, absolutely, so Spirit. I reckon it's a smart move, and Manly yeah. are probably going to have to do the same yeah, thing. Often these moves coincide with short-term pain for long-term gain. When you have to, you know, yep. color culture and, and get the rot out, usually it doesn't mean you're going to immediately turn around and become a contender. It means that you've got to swallow your pills, you know, take your medicine, and then, you know, maybe 18, 24 months down the track, you'll be far better off for it. So that could be the case here for Manly. But unfortunately, they've already been forced into a significant decision in terms of the roster with Kieran Foran moving on to the Gold Coast mm-hmm. Titans. And I feel like that's going to set him back a bit too because Foran is pretty much, you know, what it typifies to be a hard-working footballer, at least on the field there. And, you know, the, the whole idea of picking Josh Schuster over him in the halves might come back to bite them, uh, at least right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I think, uh, tough times ahead for Manly. Uh, one thing that they've always done reasonably well as a club is to fight against adversity. I, I guess it becomes... It, it, the, the early signs are... This looks like it, it being a bridge too far for them. Excuse I, me I think they need change. Excuse me if I don't shed a tear for them. <laughs> All right. So we, we've got we've got the Newcastle Knights imploding. We've got Manly having a bit of a civil war brewing. And now we've got the NRL at loggerheads with the state government of New South Wales. The grand final saga carries on, although yesterday there were some, I don't know if they were leaks or, or sort of spoilers coming out implying that Newcastle, Newcastle, New South Wales were fairly confident that the grand final would be retained. But Peter Volandis in the NRL, uh, you know, making it quite loudly known that they're open to the grand final travelling. Um, is this because of the, the state funding being pulled for stadiums? I'm not sure. But uh, right now, we're still waiting to see where the uh, NRL Grand Final is going to be calling home for the near future. Well, there's talk that now Queensland are the front runners. That's the latest word out of the NRL. Apparently, they want to secure three NRL Grand Finals before the 2032 Olympic Games, which is a big, big call. But I wouldn't be surprised if it does go north because Peter is a Peter Volandis is a man of his word, and he follows through on things. If you don't think he will. Think again, because he follows through on things that he says, and I wouldn't be surprised if he takes it to Queensland this year just to to uh, give the the New South Wales government a little bit of a taste of their own medicine, uh, you know, and and fake promises. So it'll be very very interesting to see what happens. I'd love to see it stay in Sydney, in New South Wales. It's the heart of, heartland of the game. Most of the teams come from here. We may have an all Sydney grand final again, and what a shame it would be if it's an all-Sydney grand final played in Queensland like it was last year. I know last year it was out of our hands due to COVID. That's understandable. That was a one-off, but it cannot be a recurring theme. You need to have 80,000 people at the game showpiece event, at the showpiece ground, which is Sydney Olympic Park, Homebush, a core stadium. So it has to stay here, but honestly, I would not be surprised if it ends up going to Queensland. And you've got you know, Spiro, I wouldn't be surprised either because I know that uh, through past evidence – that uh, Peter Volandis uh, plays hardball, that he doesn't 
throw out threats idly. And my disappointment here, however, is that it feels like the people of Sydney have been the pawn in this. And, it, and ultimately, if the game goes away, it will be the people of Sydney who will be the ones who, are, who, who pay the penalty because, A, they won't have a grand final, and B, they may not have funding for stadiums. And I mean, the funding for the stadiums and the choice of the stadiums to to get some funding that's that's a whole other discussion in itself. Because you know we've talked about this in the past, and 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 where the funding should and shouldn't go. Should it go to not go to a privately owned ground like the Sharks? Should it go? Should it be spent on a ground like Leichhardt rather than out in the, out in southwestern Sydney where it probably should be spent? You know, there's a whole lot of issues around that, but. The worst case scenario is the New South Wales government say, look, there's nothing we can do. We, we, we just cannot commit that money in the short term to funding local stadiums. And then Peter Valenti goes, well, we'll take it to Queensland. And then what happens? Who misses out? People of Sydney miss out on everything. The heartland of the game, the, the where the majority of the clubs are located. I mean, the, the, what we cannot avoid, yes, it's this is the National Rugby League. But the National Rugby League grew out of the Sydney Premiership. Even people in other states and other countries follow a Sydney club. That just, it, it's, it's part of the tradition of, of the game is you remove Sydney clubs and you've got a problem for the, for the game in itself. That's why, that's why the Rugby League don't even want to talk about um, getting rid of Sydney clubs to take the game away from the people of Sydney. I've hated this from the moment that that's been threatened. I really feel aggrieved by the fact that there's the threat of doing that. I just think it's holding us to ransom and we've been sitting, we've been on tenterhooks from the moment that this has been going on. It's been out there in the media for all these weeks that it's, you know, there's a chance that the, that the grand final might be moved. I think it's a disgrace that we've been put through that. I really have, and I've lost a lot of respect for Peter Valandis as a result of this. And I, I and I, and I know he's a mover and shaker, and he's a, a bloke that's done a lot for the game. He gets a big black mark from me for this. He really does. It, it feels like it's something that's been brewing for a while, ever since State of Origin became, uh, I'd say, up for grabs in terms of that one game a year. We've seen it go to Melbourne to Perth, um, you know. So the. Ever since that became, you know, in, in the name of growing the game, uh, became something that was happening on an annual basis, it eventually eyes would turn to the grand final because State of Origin, obviously, you know, this huge showpiece event for the game, but the grand final is also at that level, if not half a step above, because it is the culmination of everything in a given year. So, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that this saga is dragged out, and I wouldn't be surprised to see if the NRL does start, uh, the grand final does start travelling. Look, I'm going to be. I'll, look, I'll even get nastier with this because I'm going to call a spade a spade with this. If the entire Sydney Rugby League supporter base gets held to ransom for a small stadium in the Shire, for a dilapidated ground at Leichhardt, and for a club, a ground like Brookvale Oval over on the north side of Sydney. We're not talking about huge supporter base numbers for these three venues. We're really not when you compare it to the rest of Sydney. If we get held to ransom for that, and, I, and I'm, I'm not, I, I want to be, 
I want to be at pains to say I'm not having a crack at the supporters of those clubs. Your grounds need some money and need some work done on it. You need to be brought out of the out, out of the, the 70s that your grounds are trapped in. And I feel for you with your facilities, right? But there, there's some there's some cold hard facts about those grounds. Is that number one? Those three those three clubs don't have great membership numbers. Those three clubs, you've got one, as I said, where the ground is privately owned. So it's not any investment in that isn't going back into it's it's going potentially into the pockets of the sharks with that. Number two, we've talked about Leichhardt compared to Southwestern Sydney. Spend money on the West Tigers, but spend it where the people are for their club, not for where a small number of people are for that club. And we understand their, you know, the passion of the Balmain people for Leichhardt Oval. We're not ignoring that. And and number three, with with Manly, they have one of the lowest, lowest numbers of memberships that you will get in the NRL. Now, if the entire Sydney NRL is held to ransom for Peter Volandis doing, like, going to battle for for that and and holding everyone else to ransom, I I cannot agree with it. I, I just, I, I'm angered. I'm deeply angered by it. So, uh, I... Yeah, it's it's something that makes my blood boil because I think there's a way to go about it, and I don't know that this has been the right way to go about it. I'm hoping that the announcement that comes out this afternoon is that it's staying in Sydney and there's been some sort of compromise for funding for those grounds that that they do get brought up to speed a little bit more. But please don't hold all of the Sydney Rugby League public to ransom over those three grounds when we do have other stadiums in the Sydney metropolitan area. No, I love the strong opinion in the 60s. And, yeah, this is one way or the other you feel like there's going to be more drama out of this because if they do pick Sydney and elect for tradition, there'll be a lot of, you know, complaints out of Queensland and uh, even, you know, states like Western Australia too that want to host the grand final. But on the flip side, if they do move the grand final, then, you know, you're, you're ignoring over 100 years of history, right? So... Yeah, a lot to play out here. I think that's it for most of the drama on this week's episode, though. We can move on to some interesting news, uh, some big developments in the coaching scene, probably the worst-kept secret of uh, the this season, really, at least for the last couple of months. Cameron Serraldo confirming that he will be the head coach of the Canterbury Bulldogs moving forwards from 2023 and beyond, and not just beyond, but beyond for five years, signing a long-term deal, which be uh, very interesting to see if some of those details leak at some point because... The, uh, well, it certainly wasn't a poison Charles like the West Tigers gig. Uh, the, the dogs have been, eh, they've, they've gone for a few coaches. And uh, while they've recruited well in recent years, uh, you know, having that sort of long-term security could be both a boon or a curse, depending on where you look at it. Uh, how do we see this one, boys? Cameron Serrato, the highest uh, sought free agent coach, assistant out at Penrith. That hasn't played out too well for other assistant coaches from Penrith. Obviously, Trent Barrett at the Dogs before Serrato there. Garth Brennan up on the Gold Coast. Neither of them had uh, very happy hunting times as NRL head coaches. Is Serrato going to be the uh, anti-meatloaf and be the third time's a charm? I think it's a big gamble. I knew that this was going to happen a while ago. I mean, in the media, it was very well known that this contract was signed, sealed and delivered probably three to four weeks ago now, but... It was confirmed this week, and I think it's a huge gamble. I think it's a big, big gamble on the part of the Bulldogs. In my view, 
Mick Potter's done a great job, and the Bulldogs are playing an interesting style and brand of football, more free-flowing. Craig Sandercock has done a brilliant job as an assistant, and I think they should have probably given Mick Potter another year uh, as a a coach, give him a one-year contract or a two-year contract and give him a go because I think he's a good head coach. He's got Bulldogs DNA in him. And he has taken the Bulldogs to the next level in the last little while since Trent Barrett has uh, departed the club. And I think, yeah, Soraldo is being touted as a future great coach. We saw Craig Fitzgibbon as an assistant uh, from at the Roosters go to Cronulla and do great things. But you're doing an apprenticeship under Trent Robinson is very different to doing an apprenticeship under Ivan Cleary. I think Ivan's a great coach and a great head coach, but I just feel like it's different. You know, you can't really compare it to the Fitzgibbon move. And I think it'll be a, it's a roll of the dice. Five-year deal is a big contract for the Dogs. If they wanted to bring Serraldo there, they probably should have lured him on a maybe a two- or three-year contract, similar, similar to what they did with Des Hasler, get him to prove himself. If they see two, three seasons, they make the finals and do well with the good roster they've got, fair enough, sign him up. But – Five years up front's a big, big gamble in my eyes. And it's going to be interesting to see if the dogs have outs at, let's say, three years or four years. Because if they don't, and if Serraldo flops, that's a long-term commitment to have to pay out and then go get another coach. Hugely, hugely. 60s, what's your your take on it? I'm sort of in your boat there where I think probably that three-year mark was what I might have expected. And maybe it could have had a, a clause that triggered extra years for making the finals, just as Hasler's reportedly had over there at Manly. So I think that might have been the go, but who knows, it might have been the case that Seraldo held all the cards in terms of negotiation and that he was their man, they wanted their man. They've been prepared to risk the five years. Uh, I Like you, I think it's a big risk because the bloke is unproven. I think a five-year deal with any coach in one go is is a big risk because you i mean most coaches are they're extending for what is it? probably a lot of them are three years at the most so and that might mean that when they extend by three years maybe they they've got four years uh in total um and you might get the long-term coaches as well like bellamy and robinson and now ba where the the coaching keeps extending over a period of time, but he's been locked in for five years. And I just think when when the bloke's got no runs on the board as a, an NRL coach, that's a massive leap of faith, isn't it? So, um, you know, all the, all the right judges seem to be saying, look, if anyone's going to make that transition well, it's going to be this bloke. He's, what, 38 years of age, so he's, uh, he's a young NRL coach. Um, you know, well, let's let's see how he goes. Uh, we're not lovers of the Canterbury Bulldogs here, so um, <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to wish him any luck whatsoever. Uh, but it is interesting that those uh, previous Penrith assistants, uh, like Garth Brennan and uh, Trent Barrett, have, have not worked out too well. But now we've we've had them swoop. The Warriors swooped on uh, Webster, and the uh, Bulldogs have have now swooped on Seraldo. So. Um, I guess the Panthers have a bit of work to do to replace assistant coaches now. And speaking of assistant coaches, Parramatta's gotten a few headlines the last couple of days regarding them. I think there was some speculation on NRL 360 
about Michael Maguire potentially being courted by the Eels. And then today, I think I saw a little snippet suggesting that the Eels might be having a gander at Trent Barrett as an assistant coach as well, where as, as much as he's being floored as a head coach at Manly and the Bulldogs, he certainly has a lot of plaudits amongst the wider NRL community as an assistant coach. It'll yeah. be interesting to see how that all pans out, I guess. And I know you guys have a bit more intel on that than me. I, I know that Barrett was being touted as maybe going to the Dragons because they need two new assistant coaches as well next year. I'd like to see Mick Potter back in the blue and gold. I, I had the chance to meet him when he was at Parramatta. Great guy, great vision. And he's had a pretty successful year at the Dogs. And it'd be good to see him back at Parramatta. I don't know if he left on bad terms or if him and BA didn't get on the best. So that might be a factor there. But it'd be good. To, I'd like to see him take up the role. But anyone with experience and uh, with the knowledge of a head coaching role is highly valued. And if Madge is the man, then fair enough. Maybe he does better when there's less pressure on him and he's an assistant instead of a head coach. So it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Yeah, well, he, he and BA have history going back to the Melbourne Storm and being at uh, that club uh, together at the same time. So I think they are well, very well known to each other as, as mates. So um, I think there was reports of them being seen having a coffee or something together lately. That could have been as much about mates catching up as it was having a chat about a role. And we, we do love to speculate about pictures and, and whatnot when it comes to coffee catch-ups in the rugby league. So it certainly adds for some spicy rumours. Um, let's talk football now. Good news. The 2022 season of the NRLW is launching this week. It sees the Parramatta Eels hosting the reigning premiers in the Sydney Roosters. But even beyond that, uh, there is no expansion for this particular season, but there's been a lot of player movement. The Broncos have lost some key players. The Roosters have lost some key players. Uh, I know that Newcastle is geared up massively in terms of who they've recruited. The Titans are looking pretty good. The Dragons are still looking good. This is going to be a very exciting season, fellas. I'm pumped. I'm really, really looking forward to it from a Parramatta point of view. And I think it's a nice way to finish the year. And the fact that we've now had two NRLW seasons in this uh, calendar year is just fantastic. And I'm glad that they've made that decision. As you mentioned, Newcastle are going to be a force to be reckoned with. They've got Millie Boyle there, Tamika Upton as well. Uh, they got Hannah Southwell from the Roosters. So they, they have recruited fantastically well, and it's ironic because given their men's side hasn't had much success, maybe their women's side is going to be the key to potentially a premiership this year. Would you, Roosters, um, yeah. can, I just, can I just ask, Spiro, would you mm. put the Knights up near favourite status as a result of that recruitment? You know what? I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes. I reckon they're my smoky to win the title. The Roosters are going to be hard to go past because they were very, very good last year. And they have got a good squad again in this season, 2022. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say Newcastle and my Smokies to take it out. Parramatta, of course, with my heart. And I've done a lot of research and, and in-depth uh, looking into the team as well for the Parramatta Reels. But yeah, I'm going to say Newcastle as a Smokey to win it, the NRLW title. And 60s, you've got a bit of hype to bring to the Parramatta team this year because... Uh, while we went and lost Botil Veti Welsh last year, unfortunately, to that ACL rupture late in the uh, regular season, I think it was against the Roosters that she actually did her knee in a weird twist of fate as we played them in round one for the 2022 season. Her replacement's looking like she's going to be a real big factor this year. Yeah, I, I was, as you know, I, I, I spoke to you about this uh, last week and uh, probably said a lot more privately than I did publicly because I thought I want to keep the hype down. I want to keep the hype down and not, you know, not 
put too much focus uh, on uh, any players within the team. But uh, you know the the players and the and the club themselves have put a bit of focus on Gail Broughton. So um, I, I have no qualms now in saying what I have seen from her is nothing short of sensational in her in her prep. Um, she might she'll be my tip for for setting the NRLW on fire this season. She can play. Um, um, it's on, yeah. She it's um, yeah. She got the the background coming through from um, the uh, All Black Sevens uh, background. Uh, she had a bit of acclimatization, I think, playing for Mounties. I think from memory, correct, correct. Harvey, yep. Harvey Norman Premiership. Uh, but let me just let me just say what I've observed so far through uh, watching um, an opposed session um, that I saw the other night and also a bit of training and and also the research that I've done have had a bit of a look at uh, at her form previously. She is a player who has an attacking mindset, like just a positive attacking mindset. When you watch her carry the ball, she is looking for opportunities always looking for opportunities and uh, watching her um, get back on uh, when there were kicks put in against her at fullback in the uh, post session against the uh, flag team. And, and let me tell you, that's a pretty good hit out for a women's team to take on a flag team as well. Um, the kicks, they're going, you know, they're deep kicks. They've gone past her, whether she's had to turn and chase, she turns and chase, picks it up and she comes back in a way that was challenging the flag lines of defense like she was she was so fast and so positive with her carries that uh, they were having to work to make sure that they covered her run now how that's going to go against an NRLW team might be another thing altogether I think she's going to pose a lot of threats with her carries from the backfield but then secondly is that she she has that sevens mindset where you're seeing her um, as good, all good fullbacks do anyway, but looking for opportunities on both sides of the field. So she's got a very, she's got very good vision from what I can, from what I'm, I've been observing, and is able to see where there are weaknesses in the defence line or opportunities in the defence line. And uh, yeah, I, look, I think there's there's going to be a lot of excitement watching her this year. So uh, when you look at the Parramatta lineup, you'll see that you're pretty much looking at, an, at a new spine. Yeah, I was actually going to segue out. into that because you've got some really cool stories as part of that new-looking playmaking core. Uh, you've got the tri-code uh, Brooke Morgan-Walker, who's played both rugby sevens for Australia, played for Carlton in the AFLW, and now playing for Parramatta in the NRLW. So that's a really cool story there. And then you've got young Lasana Lutu, who's going to be playing halfback and helping steer the team around. And she came out of the New South Wales 19s, I want to say. Uh, yes. So, yep. Uh, you know, obviously great representative pedigree there, but going to be really interesting to see how she can handle the step up to the NRLW playing with that new spine as an entire new unit. If yeah. I can just add to what 60 said about Gail Broughton quickly, just a little bit of insight. A good friend of mine plays for the North Sydney Bears in the Harvey Norman Women's <laughs> Premiership and, and played against uh, Gail Broughton for Mounties and said she's such a hard player to defend because you just do not know what is going to come your way when she's running the ball. So really looking forward to seeing 
what she brings to the side. And given, unfortunately, Bo Tilvetti Welsh had that ACL injury, we do lose her this season. But Gal Broughton, a perfect replacement. In terms of Lasana Lutu, I just want to touch on her for a minute and put the spotlight on her because I think she's going to be another player that will impress for Parramatta and, and do really well this NRLW season. I've watched quite a bit of her football playing for New South Wales City up at the Women's National Champs earlier this year. Saw her play Origin, saw her play for the Tigers in the Harvey Norman Women's Premiership. And she is an absolute star. Her running game is on point. She's got a great kicking game as well. And she's young. She's only 18, 19, but she's the future. And I think having someone like that in the halves with Brooke Morgan Walker is going to work perfectly. And I'm really pumped to see what Lutu brings to the NRLW. She's got a, an interesting running game. That's that's the, the elusive, attractive part um, of what she does. And as I said, a kicking game as well. So excited to see that in there. A strong, strong lineup, as you mentioned, a new look spine, but I'm confident in what, they, what they've what they put on paper, and it'll be interesting to see how they perform and, this Saturday against the Roosters. And it's not all yeah. new look, too. Eels do have some familiar faces across the back line in the forward pack. Tiana Penetani, who's been elevated to co-captain of the team alongside uh, the lock forward, Smyma Taufa. But in the back line, it's Penetani, Abby Church, Rakia Horn. We saw plenty of them last year in the forward pack. Uh, Philomena Hanisi, she really kicked on in a big way. Young prop forward there. Ellie Johnston gets the... Bump up from being the interchange prop to being a starting prop this year. Christian Pio started to establish herself in the back end of the 2021 season. Um, and then, you know, you look at the other new faces. Vanessa Foliaki is going to be a really strong presence in the back row, in particular in defense for the Eels. And then the the new faces and the young girls start, you know, coming in. You've got Rima Butler. She's been one someone that impressed you, 60s. On the, the fringes of the top 17 now, uh, Ruby Jean Kennard. She's the 18th player this week. Um, you've got young Ruben Charrington. So there's in all those uh, development players that we've mentioned before coming out of the Tasha Gale competition, this is a really exciting transition period for the Parramatta Eels where they've got yeah. some new recruits, some developing players, and a solid core to help guide all that. Yeah, it's uh, and we've got uh, Kennedy Charrington's coming back from uh, injury, I think. So she's been in um, or an op. Um, so she's I think she had... Um, a little bit of a period of rehab, but she's starting from the bench this week. But she's one of those returning faces as well. Um, her had lots of uh, uh, good word as well about Navanda George. Um, you mentioned uh, Rima Butler impressing me. Yes, I've only been able to watch her in the uh, in the two training sessions, but she just immediately got my attention and um, had some good word about her too coming out of Wenty, where she was running around in the Harvey Norman Women's Premiership. it's uh, they, they will play a faster brand of football from what I've seen. And uh, it looks like they've recruited the type of players that will allow them to play that brand of football. And so it's, it's interesting because in a way, you know, obviously we've been watching the pathways for a, a number of years now, but in a way this feels a very like a very similar transition to what the Tasha Gale did from last year to this year, where the year before... It was a more orthodox, conventional sort of power game through the middle. Uh, and, you know, it, it worked to an extent, but they just lacked the speed and skills of some of the, the better teams in that competition. Fast forward to this year. Yeah, and you can see. Yep. Yeah, I was just going to say, fast forward this yep. year, and, and speed and ball playing and skill became a big point of emphasis for not just recruitment, but development. And it, it looks like that's come to play in who they've recruited and how they've developed their squad. Yeah, and can I also say as well that um, looking at the at, at their setup there as well, 
They've got a number of uh, development players from the Tasha Gale team that are uh, involved in the Eels NRLW preseason mm-hmm. and training. They've got staff from the Eels, uh, uh, from the Tasha Gale, sorry, I should have said, from the Tasha Gale, uh, young players from the Tasha Gale involved in the NRLW. You've got the uh, Tasha Gale staff that are also involved with that as well. So you can see that pathway being firmly established there and and getting that real link uh, within the club, within the players, that will um, start to show with the, the players that graduate from um, the Eels juniors through to the, the senior team. And I mentioned the other week that uh, when I was up there watching NRL training up at Kellyville, the, the Kellyville Bush Rangers were training on the other fields and there were three teams training. They were all girls' teams, all teenage girls' teams. So you, you start to see the, that real uptick in the serious involvement of uh, in the women's pathways. And so exciting, I mean, exciting time. Oh, for absolutely. The- and it's something we've been really hammering home whenever we can on our podcast is just how, mm. not, not just important, but as a fan, how fun it is to see the, the women's space starting to explode and the quality of the games that it's starting to bring. You know, it is good for, for the game in general. You know, it's I, be- hope it, I hope it keeps some of the different qualities as well because we, we don't see – as much garbage in the ruck, do we, in the women's game? You know, you, you, yeah. you that, start, that, that, that starting, is the concern you know, that it might end up becoming that way down the road as they become more and yeah. more drilled. But right now, I think the product's in a fantastic spot. And, you know, this all helps for a future TV deal because if you've got a compelling women's product that is going to be op- occupying more and more TV space to help sell, then everyone benefits. So that's, Absolutely. Yeah, that, mm. that's something and you want to see. I've actually watched a lot of women's rugby league so far this year. Watched the the city country teams playing the under nineteens champ and uh, under nineteens championship. You had the Harvey Norman women's premiership. So I watched a lot of the football, and it is so entertaining. It's a great product. And just quickly as well, before we move on from this, Ruby Jean Kennard, someone who I was really impressed by in the New South Wales v Queensland under nineteens women's game. Her running game. Uh, very strong with the ball in hand, defensively really good as well. And she has come all the way through, I believe. She started yes. at the Tasha Gale level. So I'm really keen and I, I hope to see Ruby Jean Kennard uh, play in the NRLW side. I know she's 18th uh, player this week, but it'd be great to see her on the field as well. Kennedy Cherrington coming back from, I believe, a, a bit of a knee injury off the bench. I think she'll bring a bit of impact and, and she'll be an asset there as well. It'll be a tough game because the Roosters outfit are, are, are really strong. Yeah. And they've got... A big name side, great bench as well. So it'll be very, very interesting. It'll be a tough ask for the Paragirls, but anything can happen. It's a free-flowing style of game. It's a great product, as you guys mentioned. So hoping uh, they can get the win and, and uh, get a get the two points under the belt for week one. Yeah, given all the recruitment that's happened this year in the NRLW, I was going to say there probably isn't an easy game anymore amongst all six sides, but it doesn't get much harder than the reigning premiers in the Sydney Roosters. So what a litmus test for our girls. First up, they kick off at 1 o'clock p.m. on Saturday out at Combank Stadium as part of that big triple header, New South Wales Cup, NRLW and NRL, as well as it being the Old Boys Day and the Sound West performance. So what a day out of the Combank Stadium. That is absolutely massive. So if you want to get out and see some football and, and listen to some uh, good music, get out there. But that brings yeah. us to... And let's and let's give that emphasis to the fact that it is the Old Boys Day. They're having their reunion over at uh, lunch and over in the Parramatta Leagues Club. Uh, before the match, they're going to come over. They'll, they'll do a lap of honour around Combank Stadium. 
So hopefully we've got plenty of people who are already in the stadium through seeing the uh, the New South Wales Cup and then the NRLW match. And uh, we've got plenty of people in the ground and cheering the cheering the old boys around the ground when they do their lap of honour. And I suppose the other thing to, to sort of segue from that is that Right now, it's just Old Boys Day, but with the NRLW going from strength to strength, at some point, it's going to be Old Boys and Old Girls Day as, uh, you know, former classes of Parramatta will celebrate what we hope will be NRLW premierships and all the different I think, classes. I think they're going to want a different term, mate. I don't think they're going to – I don't think the, the ladies are going to appreciate the term old girls somehow. <laughs> just, just, just sneaky, just old, a sneaky old, feeling. I mean, okay, how about, how about old boys and dames? Boys. We'll go with old boys and dames day. <laughs> mate, we had enough – we were hearing that there was enough of a kickback, uh, uh, you know, lashback about – uh, some of the former players being referred to as old boys, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, like uh, oh, old girls is unlikely yeah. to fly whatsoever. Uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. It'll be a very fun one too, being able to celebrate what we hope will be, you know, past successes of NRLW squads for the Parramatta Eels. Now, talking about success or a lack thereof last week, boys, the passive Parramatta Eels from the opening set against the South City Rabbitohs. It, it was a game where Sixties and I tried to be optimistic in the preview. Uh, we did make note of the fact of how, how much of a stranglehold the Bunnies have had over the Eels in recent years, and geez, that came to play, didn't it? Uh, just Parramatta's, what should be a feared pack, was rolled from the opening set. Uh, early error from Dylan Brown compounded things, and then South City just went for the throat. I might take the time out while you're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Oh, well, you guys have given... You guys have given your takes, that instant reaction part. I don't know how you guys do it because it'd be hard. You know, off the back of a loss like that, you're not really in the mood to chat uh, about that performance. But you guys did a great job and, and really impressed and, and uh, enjoyed the takes of Brett Kenny as well, which I'll touch on in just a moment. But in recapping that game, what disappoints me most as a fan is that for a match like that, we need to turn up and perform. That's the reality, right? The coach and the captain have a responsibility to help get the team up and get them prepared for a big game like that when a top four spot is on the line and it is such an important game. Friday night at home, South, as soon as I heard that Ilias was out, I thought, gee, we're a good chance tonight given that their spine's going to be unstructured. But from the get-go, we let South get on top of us and Latrell Mitchell looked dangerous every time he got the ball and Cody Walker probably played one of his games of the season. But for Parramatta not to score any points at all and for some of the individual performances to or players to perform like they did individually, it was very disappointing. But as a team effort, you know, you can't excuse that. You can excuse if one player has an off night, you get that, you respect that, you move on. But for the whole team to not show up and not uh, put up a fight against the Bunnies was so disappointing. And it, it really does my head in as a fan. I was there for the continuous call team and was watching the game from the box. And there were a lot of opportunities, right? And Brett Kenny touched on this. Our fifth tackle options, when we were five metres out from our try line, were pretty poor. At the same time, we just kicked the ball in the air, kicked the ball in the air, kicked the ball in the air. Try something different. Be a little bit more creative. Try and force a repeat set. Do the little things right. There were a lot of similarities, I felt, with Friday night's game and the Broncos game a couple of weeks ago where we had a lot of scoring opportunities. We couldn't capitalize. And it just it's very frustrating as a fan to see that because when it's an important game and there's a lot on the line, you expect them to stand up and they don't. The one person I want to give a rap to, and I know you guys have done this in Bumpers Up as well, is Bryce Cartwright. 
off the bench. He provided something different, you know, and that's what I liked about what I saw there. He came on and and I felt that he really tried his heart out and tried to create opportunities. But other than that, you know, Gutho at times had some had some good efforts. But as you guys mentioned, which team doesn't come prepared to play a footy game? That's basically what Gutho said in the press conference that we didn't come to play tonight. Like that's just pathetic. That is so that disappointing fly. to hear. Yeah, yeah it, does, it, it just doesn't fly. They've, you know, you can't keep trotting that out. No, time it is the worst thing you could possibly tell a fan, isn't it? Like, that we did not come to play tonight. It's like, and we've spoken about this at length in the podcast. Like, I understand that when, if you think about your work week and how if you had to distill it all down to just literally an hour and a half where you had to maximise your productivity and, and you had no room for error, like, sure, the, the stakes get raised up, but people also pay commissionate to it and that these footballers make good wages and they need to make sure they turn up on a weekly basis. And the fact that from the open, it wasn't just like, okay, slow start, you know, South Sydney, you know, had the ascendancy. It was literally the opening kickoff. That first set, we didn't chase collision. We got rolled. We uh, we bounced off tackles, allowed offloads, allowed them to get over the A-line every single carry, uh, you know, and then that's followed up in our second possession when Dylan drops it on halfway. And, you know, just, it was a complete lack of, you know, mental focus, of drive, of just commitment to the collision. So I can understand why fans were very unhappy with that that game but and, you know and the other thing like you mentioned Spiro you know when Bryce Cartwright comes on and he becomes the tone setter because when he and 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 to BA's credit we do criticize him for his bench, bench rotations at times he actually got those trio of bench forwards on quite early in this game uh, usually Junior and Reg will play out the entire first half or close to but he got Kafusi Niakore and Cartwright out there and they actually stimmed the bleeding a bit like they actually were able to hold South Sydney back somewhat whereas our starting forwards couldn't or our starting middles couldn't so yeah, yeah. I, I I there was there's been a bit of criticism um, uh, even within uh, within TCT itself about um, you know Cartwright being brought on as a middle forward and I'm thinking no 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 that that's like for like he's he's replaced Madison with Cartwright and Madison uh, Cartwright we know he's got all the skills of a middle forward that's that uh, yeah I think, I'm sorry I think... of the um the thirteen the thirteen position which. The thirteen is now literally a, a brand new spine position. It's addition to that exactly. spine. Yeah. yeah, and um, and as you said, um, he those changes stymied the bleeding that was going on. It didn't make it worse. We yeah. we know that it stymied it. And and you know what? If some of those players were actually pushing up in support, there were a number of times where Cartwright was taking the ball up yeah, and he, he was, was looking beg- for someone for to someone. come running. Yeah. It wasn't forcing the offload. He was just begging someone to come off his shoulder. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's something we've spoken so, about in the past. When you have good Parramatta, there are guys pushing up support. Bad Parramatta, everyone's on an island when they're carrying the ball. There is yeah, no, one, look, no one with them. I, I think we can sum it up where um, we expected Parramatta to come out breathing fire in this game. And they came out with the – it was basically the complete opposite. They, yeah. were, they were dominated from the opening set. They were passive. Uh, the only real word to describe them is pathetic. Like yeah. it was absolutely, it was passive. It was pathetic. Yeah. It, it was just some of the poorest um, response we've seen from the team this year to a match that should have meant everything to them. It, it should have meant everything. It looked like it meant nothing to them. And it was almost a literal manifestation of the, you know, the idiom two steps forwards, one step back. You know, you made great progress knocking over the Penrith Panthers, backing that up into a, a clutch second half against the Manly Seagulls. 
and then it gets you know significantly set back by a game where you were just never in it because you didn't you weren't interested in competing through the ruck and you know and more to that I know we were without Mitchell Moses who is the signal caller the guy that can you know spearhead a lot of the actual strategies uh, to the highest degree but the bunnies caught in Dean Hawkins like uh, we didn't go after him at all that entire game we didn't make him do any work we just allowed them to play through Cody Walker exclusively and carve us up and you know and go well look the, the the contrast the contrast in the kicking game and the kick pressure between the two teams oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, was stark because South had the kick chase and the pressure happening all through the game. Parramatta, again, the kick chase was as passive as the as their just their line defence because it was a, a slow amble up the field. Yes, they were going up in a straight line, but there was no pressure that was put on any of the catches. We weren't contesting kicks. We weren't putting pressure on the kicker or or on the receiver. Uh, you know, like it's they and and there was nothing different being thrown at them. So, uh, it was as it was as ineffective as you could as you could expect. Now, yes, we base our kicking game on on just simply getting territory. But there comes a point where you, as you said, you have to mix up your kicks. You have to apply pressure with the kicks, and it just didn't happen. Can I add something interesting, guys, that I heard from John Morris, the assistant coach at the Rabbitohs, um, first year in that job. But he made an interesting observation post-match, right? And he told us that um, – because he walked past our box at the end of the game and we had a bit of a chat to him. And he said it was interesting because when Monday rolled around, the whole team, right, the vibe at the Bunnies, it's Redfern, was that we're going to get up this week. We're going to beat Parramatta. Yeah. We're going to smash these guys, right? That was their mentality yeah. from Monday. Because the, 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 history, the history speaks towards that. They know they've because got the, the history. Yeah. And he's, and he's like, it's weird. He's like, because it doesn't happen for any other club. It doesn't happen for any other game. But there was a, this mentality, this thing, right, where it switched, uh, flicked the switch from Monday. We're going to beat these guys. We're going to smash them. And he said that that mentality carried through the entire week up until game day. Now, that's a sign of a good culture, right? And unfortunately, I've got to say it here and I've got to call it out that there are concerning signs about the culture at Parramatta because they should have got up for a game like that. I'm sorry to say, right? Because if we had won a couple of these games that we should have won this year, we'd be in the top four. We'd be contesting for top four. But there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether some players are... I, I, I don't know. I, I can't make a comment on that. But just my overall observation is... There's something culturally that we haven't got right because the captain and coach has to get the team up for a game like that and build this mentality of, okay, South have had the wood on us the last little while, but we're going to go out Friday night in front of our home fans, 23,000, top four spot on the line. We're going to get the win. We need the momentum to carry on through to the finals. But we blew the opportunity, which is really disappointing. So uh, that's my observation, guys. Yeah, uh, I think the fact that the line was breached so easy and there was so much ground that was made so easily in those opening minutes that you needed someone when we were gathered behind the line, the first try that they got, which was as soft as, but you needed the riot act to be read right then and someone and and this is is, maybe it's a, um, a sign of uh, where the mindset's at, but we needed someone like a Ray Stone out there leading the line speed. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I, I mean, can you picture 
and, and maybe this is too big a call to say this about about someone that's missing, but could you imagine Ray Stone being passive in defence? No, not at all. He doesn't no have way. a passive, he doesn't have a passive bone in his body. Like if you if he was out there in the number thirteen jersey, or he was sent from the bench to be in that number thirteen jersey, he would have been not only just leading the line speed, but he would have been chopping blokes down. He would have had the the halfbacks watching over their over their shoulder about you know like what what's who's about to hit them. And you know that we needed we need someone like that out there in games like that, who's who basically calls out the other players for their garbage with, if not with words, then via their own actions. Like a follow me, we had nobody out there with the follow me attitude. Do you think that's a fair call? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, you, you want someone that's got that dog in him, you know, that, that you know, wants, like I said, wants to chase the collision, wants to set the tone. And well, we were talking we were talking about this before, 40, and I used a, I used a, a bit more of an expletive. A bit more colourful, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was a bit, yeah, I was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more colourful in the uh, in the terminology. In the descriptive terminology of it, exactly. the type of player we need out there. It's the sort of but word the, I'm the conclusion was that you, you want, and as much as it can shit you because some of the, the acts on the field are, you know, they cross the line, as we saw off the elbow that he used against Manly, I think it was, but a Jared Warrior Hargrave would do wonders for this team, or a player of that ilk, where hard-nosed, willing to not just toe the line but cross it at times to set a tone. And yes, it can make you sort of get frustrated when they do it against you and your team, but you know they're, they're the first one through the breach. They're the ones that are carrying the flag and, and dragging the rest of the unit with them. Mate, no, I think we need a um, an up-late version or an adults-only version of... Uh of the of the tip sheet at times for how I'd like to express what we need out there, <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> because you, you you know you you feel like you need to be more colourful in in the language that you use after a loss or or, or describing the sort of players that we need out there, um, but it's true. I mean, we need someone out there that's that is right on that edge that's prepared to you know go close to crossing yeah, the line that wants to push the boundaries yeah. exactly yeah yeah so um oh mate uh, it's uh yeah well look the only thing we can do now and and we have to hope the team does this um and it's and, it, and it's a, a pretty shallow way of of finalizing our thoughts on the game it needs to be put behind us. Oh yeah, goldfish memory sort of stuff. Like if you, yeah. there, we've spoken about it with some other losses that we've had in the last couple of years. But there, there sometimes there's a game where you just cannot take anything from it, good or bad, to bring with you. And the, you know, the, the gist of the game against South Sydney was they didn't, they didn't want the collisions, they didn't want to play physical football, and that is at the core of the identity of the Parramatta Eels. So what else can you take from that outside of move on, go play some Parramatta football? Yeah, you know the the only fear that I have is that another game like that's in us. Well, especially, especially since South's going to be in the thick of it for the finals. Uh, the fact that they've got that mental edge on us, just you know, we know we can beat Penrith, we know we can beat Melbourne, we know we can beat the Roosters, but that head to head matchup against South Sydney is very troubling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's and the thing is, we're not seeing any sign of it changing. 
You know, it's when we were talking last week and in the preview, I said something along the lines of, um, you know, I'm desperate for a win, but a win may not be everything. I'm, what I'm really keen on is that is that it is a real contest, a genuine mm-hmm. contest where the, where the team who battles the hardest gets the win. And we didn't see any battle. There was no battle. We saw we saw one team cruise to a win. That's basically it. I mean, if anything, I thought South might have taken the foot off the throat a little bit. Uh, yeah, the, absolutely, uh, 20, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, twenty six, twenty six nil. This is this is the worst part. I think twenty six nil flattered us. Yeah, that's yeah. It could have been a lot worse. Oh yeah, yeah, and and you know, a couple of significant uh, take out a, a couple of significant defensive plays from Gutherson in the first half. And the first half could have got well away from us. It could have been well over 30 in the first half. And you know if it gets well over 30 in the first half, Parramatta against South, it would have been he- heading for a half century in the second half. Mm-hmm. Because if they, weren't, if they weren't up for the score when it was nil all, they, they would not have been up for it if the score was, you know, 30 nil or 36 nil at half time. So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, it feels like we're ending this discussion on such a low note. Give me something. Either of you, give me something. Something heading into this week. Uh, well, look, I, in all seriousness, I'm really excited for the NRLW season. That's that's the positive. And I think although Parramatta on paper have a team which look young and maybe inexperienced, I think that we've got a good chance of a finals berth at the very least, which would be just brilliant to see. And I think bringing people in like Brooke Morgan Walker and, and uh, Gail Broughton, two absolute superstars in their previous codes, it's going to bring something different, a fresh flavor to the team. So I'm pumped. I reckon it's going to be great. And looking to Saturday, we have an opportunity to uh, over, you know, right the wrongs, if you like, um, against a Bulldogs outfit at home. They need to put in a big performance. With a win, we secure a top eight spot because there's still a chance if we lose every game, Canberra win every game, that we slip out of the top eight. So it is very important. And a win this weekend will make sure that Parramatta don't miss the finals. So we can at least settle that. So it's a big, big game. And hopefully Mitch returns. There's talk that he might not return, that there may be issues with that finger. So fingers crossed. I'm really, uh, no pun intended there, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. So fingers crossed they can get the job done. I'll be out there. I'm really looking forward to it because I haven't been out to many games this year, guys, as a fan, be able to really enjoy the game. So I'm pumped to get out there, really soak it up, Saturday afternoon footy, hopefully a big crowd. I mean, two Sydney rivals. And, um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to getting out there and, and making the most of um of my Saturday afternoon and hopefully celebrate a win afterwards. Well, I think we're, we're looking Looking forward to being out there as well. It's a it's a big day of footy. Um, it's a it's actually a big day being covered on uh, Fox as well because they're covering both the New South Wales Cup and the NRLW live leading into the NRL clash. So lots to watch. Whether you're watching it live at the ground, which we hope most of you will get out there and do, or if you're watching it on television, a big day of football. Lots to look forward to. And it looks like we're going into extra time this week, 60s. We've uh, got the podcast running just a little bit over the usual runtime after we move to that uh, tri-weekly format. And this week, you're taking us into the heart of Parramatta and Northwest Sydney. Nestled alongside both North Mead and Borkham Hills, the suburb of Winston Hills is located in the heart of the Eels catchment area. In fact, it's not far off the midpoint between Combank Stadium and Eels HQ at Kellyville. 
Today, John and I have the pleasure of speaking with the president of the Winston Hills Tigers Club, Stephen Mills. Steve, welcome to this episode of The Tip Sheet. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Really happy to be here. Steve, the Winston Hills Tigers celebrated their 50th anniversary a couple of years back, and the club has interesting origins because their story is linked to some of the early planning of the suburb. Yeah, you're right. Um, so we are very fortunate that we have been going for some time. Um, we were supposed to have our 50th, but unfortunately it was right in the middle of the COVID lockdown. So we didn't really get to celebrate in style the way that uh, we would have hoped to have. But uh, but in the early formations of um, of the area of Winston Hills or Model Farms, back what was called that, uh, yeah, there was um, a group of people, I think one of them was a um, real estate agent where they all kind of got a bit of a planning group together and um, just made sure that there was adequate uh, playing fields for all kind of codes within the area. And we know that the entrepreneurial spirit is strong in any junior rugby league club, but obviously those early days required the founders to be incredibly resourceful. Uh, they did, yeah. We've, we've, I remember a few of the stories you know, being told over the years that um, – uh, Hookers, I believe, is, is, was the real estate agent who were really helping driving uh, community sport within the area. Uh, but we certainly did, uh, there was an, there was a kind of a um, an auxiliary club and things like that put together, uh, where a few of the members of the area uh, got together and, and started planning out, um, you know, trying to find resources, areas to play, and, and the likes of. So, I think. Um, we did get a small donation uh, from Hookers. So I think they provided the jerseys for us, which was our traditional colours of uh, yellow and white. Uh, has evolved a little bit over time, but um, yeah, there's some small small amounts raised as well. And I think um, Paramount District also uh, threw in some socks for us as well. So, and back then, uh, it, there was a tremendous need for a rugby league club in the area. Uh, I remember that back in the, around the time that Winston Hill started, uh, people like myself that lived around North Mead or Model Farms ended up playing rugby union because it was really the only walking distance option in the area. Was that need for a rugby league club reflected in the number of teams and players that the, the club was fielding through the 70s? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it was off to a bit of a slow start. I think, um, like with all clubs, uh, once you kind of get on your feet, you, you might only have one or two sides. I think when we first started competing in the 70s, uh, there was only one side formed. But uh, over the years, uh, it certainly started to grow, um, especially assuming all the other competitions or all the other clubs within the area, sorry, uh, we're all starting to build a bit of momentum there as well. Uh, but over, yeah, over the next kind of 10 to 20 years, uh, that was when the club was probably at its strongest, uh, where we had around about 18 sides, I think, was our peak. And uh, we, we've spoken to a former Parramatta Eel who's received a similar gong on our podcast before and Dave Lydiard, but it must give the Tigers tremendous pride that the first Secretary President, Ted Widener, yep. has been recognised with an Order of Australia Medal for his contributions to the sport. Yes, Ted has been absolutely instrumental uh, for the Winston Hills Tigers. Uh, so obviously he was the founding president and secretary and held that position for as long as I can remember. Um, me playing my junior days, he was always always around and um, always on the board. Uh, even after his, uh, his, his kids had kind of gone through, he still uh, hung in there and, and contributed as well. So I think... Uh, 
Ted receiving that order uh, was, was very fitting for all of his contributions over the years. And I guess that's really a reflection of uh, the passion that uh, people develop for the, the clubs that they're involved with that, you know, it might start off with having kids involved in the teams, but uh, once the, the kids move on, that passion for helping the club doesn't die for, uh, for, for some individuals. Yeah, I, I suppose the same could be said about myself. Um, people actually ask, I, I don't have any kids in the club and I've been there for played and, and um, numerous other roles within the club for, that's almost sad to say, about 25 years now, I think. So It's, um, it's definitely been a recurring theme for us in the Paris stories, hasn't it, Sixties, seeing you know, yeah. just the, the incredible commitment and community that has been fostered that you know encourages people, like you said, that even if they don't have kids in these clubs to stay not just engaged but heavily involved and helping keep them on their feet. Yeah, that was that yeah. was something when you just when you were just talking about that, Steve, about Ted, and then then yourself. That really resonated with us because that has been something that we've discovered with a, a lot of the clubs that we've spoken to about the people who just continue to give to to clubs that you know it once becomes part of their blood that they mm-hmm. they just can't get it out of the system. Uh, let, let's just move to the to the present day now. Uh, what age groups do the Tigers currently field and how many registered players does that represent? Yeah, sure. We're, we're, we're going quite well. We've got um, sides ranging from under sixes all the way up to 18s. And uh, the number, I think we're a touch over 100 players currently. And right. One area we're seeing explosive growth in the code is the participation rates of young ladies in the game. Has there been a noticeable uptick there for the Tigers in the last couple of years? I can't say there's been a noticeable uptick. We do have a few female players, which is great to see. We are certainly open to trying to establish an actual uh, female's side, all-female side. Uh, But uh, you're right, um, some other clubs in the area, they're going really well in this space, and it's really good to see. And we can't ignore this next question because it's it's really been – shaping a lot of what's happened in clubs in the last few years, and that's COVID. It's impacted so many aspects of people's lives over the last couple of years. What sort of challenges did the Winston Hills Tigers face and how did you deal with it? Yeah, it has been a rough old couple of years. Uh, so I think that the first year we got started and then you know COVID really set in and then obviously along came the lockdowns. Uh, had a lot of good support from New South Wales State Government, but also Parramatta. Uh, they were very good with all their messaging and, and um, yeah, very frequent with uh, keeping the clubs up to date about what's required and, and um, you know, how, we, how we're going to kind of weather this storm. But when we could get back out on the field, um, obviously there was, there was a few changes, especially around um, uh, social distancing and the likes of, but uh, it was good to... Yeah, so us get out there eventually, but then of course uh, round two happened again, and yeah, um, yeah. went back into lockdown. But it, it was very hard, um, yeah, especially for all, all the all the players that couldn't get out there and, and be amongst their friends. Um, but I suppose from a club perspective, um, you know, a, a lot of our volunteers all, all certainly helped it helped it out around the place by. Just making sure we had the right signage. We were, we were doing everything um, up the code during that time. Uh, we still had some great support from our sponsors um, and yeah, in a pretty good financial position where we could continue on through that time. And that 
that was another thing that uh, re- has resonated too with uh, some of the clubs is the way that those uh, sponsors, where they could, hung in there and 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 continued to support the the clubs even if if teams weren't getting on the field. Hundred percent. Yeah, we would find being being not so big of a club, we'd uh, we would have found it very hard if we didn't have that support from sponsors. So, so you still try and give them as much um, the love, I suppose, as you can by you know, pushing them through your social network and things like that. But. Uh, but yeah, we, we're very fortunate to have some very loyal uh, sponsors within the Tigers. So, um, yeah, very happy with that. Now, this is a question that is simple on the surface, but when we put it to junior clubs, you find there's a lot of depth and nuance to it. But who makes up the Tigers community and what makes them so special? That's a good one. Uh, so, obviously, all, all the volunteers who, uh, who just put in day, day in, day out. Um, you know, we've got a few core uh, people in there where um, yeah, they'll beat you down to the ground at seven in the morning and they're already starting to put out the goalposts. And uh, yeah, a lot of those people hang around the whole day as well. Um, yeah, they, they might go off to some of their games, but then always come back and still still help out. But that's yeah, one aspect of it. A lot of our, a lot of our parents are all more than happy to turn a sausage or um, help out in the canteen where possible. So just to help to make the day run a lot smoother and, and make it a lot more enjoyable for everybody who turns up at the ground. Uh, yeah, the, the board are, are very progressive. We're, we're a good board, so very happy with who we've got there at the moment. Um, obviously, all putting in a lot of time and there's a lot of things which go on behind the club, which a lot of other people don't see, you know, running for grants and, and all, that, all that type of stuff. So... So uh, yeah, very dedicated. But obviously, yeah, it's it's all the members that they know what type of club we are, where we um we, we do appreciate any support we can get. And um yeah, I think just the the families within the club, you know, it is certainly a community, um and everybody you know, really gets along well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of activities which all the teams do outside of playing rugby league as well. So. So, um, yeah, some great friendships get forged through our club. So the natural follow-on from that question is to flip it and say and ask you, why do you think that the Winston Hills Tigers Club is important to the community? Yeah, I think it's a sense of belonging. Um, you know, the, the community itself is quite tightly knit. Um, yeah, there's a lot of other codes out there as well, uh, which is great to see, but... I think um, everybody who's who's part of the club really feels like they're part of the club. Um, they they know everybody from from the board down to the ball boy, really. So <laughs> so it is. Uh, yeah, it's it, it really is a, a great place to be. And uh, speaking of the community, from the early days, that actually extended to Queensland and the Brother St Brendan's Club. Can you talk us through that interesting connection? Yeah, that that was going on for quite some time. I think they reached out. Uh, to Paramount Districts and uh, I think they put our name uh, forward which was very nice of them and uh, so we were happy to oblige and, and so what the what that kind of deal was where back in the day you, you'd actually they'd come down and stay over the weekend in uh, in Winston Hills and, and have a game of rugby league against us and then we would go up there and play as well uh, so that relationship was going on for a very long time. I think I was actually one of the last teams to go up uh, and play against the brothers. Uh, I think, unfortunately, they they, um, they end up merging with another team or another yeah, another team up there. 
And uh, yeah, so that kind of unfortunately fell away in the late 90s. So it, it went on for a very long time. It was a very nice uh, kind of trophy which was made up. It was almost like a state of origin trophy where you had a, a you know, Queensland and New South Wales side of side of it. Um, I think it almost got lost one time in the floods um, up there with up in Queensland, and it somehow got recovered. But uh, it's now sitting proudly in our uh, in our trophy cabinet. <laughs> that. Was it a case also of when you'd go, you'd get billeted with local families and, and that sort of stuff during the stay? Was that all part of that? Back in the day, it was, yes. I think um, I've, I've actually been fortunate to go up a few times, but back then it was they'd be billeted out with your family um, one or two nights and then uh, I think they might have a hotel room and then head off back. But, um, yeah, certainly the trip up there was always interesting on the bus and uh, staying at a few surf life dating clubs and and uh, getting billeted out. But uh, all those days are now gone. So we, we do keep the tradition up. Uh, so it is uh, something which uh, juniors work towards for – so it's usually in the under-15s. We'll send them up um, and they have to raise a fair bit of funds for that. But, uh, yeah, the, the old days of jumping on the bus – Going up or over, and um, obviously billeting is finished as well. But uh, they do get to fly up and stay. <laughs> I was going to say, nice billeting might be a bit of an alien term for some of the younger listeners of the podcast. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, something that's oh, probably you can, you, you can tell there that that was part of my football experience. Mm-hmm. The, the <laughs> we we uh, ours was a trip down to Cootamundra and, uh, and and billeting down there. Although I think one of the years I was there in um, the pub. I think we were put up in as well. So, um, yeah. Um, just looking at the club's socials, I noticed there was a big trivia night on August 20. Um, I'll just I'll get you to tell us a bit about that and, and whether there's any other big events on the calendar, either on or off the field for the Tigers. Yeah, so the, the trivia night's the, the marquee night for us every year. And, and that is purely run by whichever team or age group is going up to Queensland to play a side up there. So it is a it is a great way for them to raise funds to get up there. So yeah, it's always a fun night. Um, yeah, trivia is the the reason, but um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, a few people go for other reasons as well. But it, it is always yeah, a uh, big big event. Obviously, we have our um, our presentation day at the end of the year. You know, we all get together and and celebrate the year which has had and any other achievements which come along with it. But uh, yeah, as, as I mentioned before, we would have loved to have had our 50th, but now we're getting closer to the 60th, really. So I'll have to um, hold fire on start, that one for a bit. Yeah, start start making plans now and uh, and mm. and uh, and hope they don't get thwarted somehow. But yeah, so you, yeah. There, there's still teams that are going up to uh, other places in Queensland. Then as like part of what an end of year trip or um, during the year. What what what's happening with that? Yeah, so it is. It's. It is purely just for uh, – it's either the 15s or 16s at the end of the year. Uh, we, we're trying to settle on – so if anybody up in Queensland are listening, around the Gold Coast area, we're trying to settle on a, a club uh, to try and rekindle that uh, reciprocal uh, deal which we had. Yeah. Uh, so in in the past, we have played a couple of different ones, but haven't really stuck with anybody just yet. But uh, but no, other, other activities outside of – Obviously, each each team gets to um, raise funds throughout the year by selling you know, raffle tickets and things like that, or meat raffles. Um, so it depends on how much they've raised, and then um, if they want to go anywhere, it's up to them. Well, we know that we've got some uh, loyal 
TCT listeners and followers up there in Queensland. We had some of them come down to uh, to Paraleagues after the game the other week. Um, so I might just reach out to them through the socials, whether they're listening now, or I just might send them a message to say if they're connected with a club, just to uh, get in touch. That'd be beautiful. That'd be great. Now, Steve, you've already alluded to it in our chat earlier, and it's not exactly you know a secret from anyone that's involved in Junior Rugby League, but junior clubs face challenges, significant challenges every year, be they financial or logistical. Uh, how do the Tigers meet said challenges in a given season? Yeah, tough one. I think um, a lot of it comes down to you know, our, our operating methods. So uh, and when you're running a canteen and, and doing pub raffles and things like that, uh, you've got to be quite uh, stringent with making sure that all that cash is, is getting back into the bank. And um, at the moment, we've actually embarked on a few big projects around the ground, um, just a few a uh, few big jobs which have been ticking off, but um, we have been kind of working towards those over the last few years. So trying to raise a, a bit of funding um, yeah, through a few grants of late um, and also sponsorship helps out. So um, as I mentioned before, all of our great sponsors are always there for us. Uh, but I, I suppose, yeah, it's just having a good operating model um, and especially within the board. I mean, we, we all certainly know what our roles are and um, and making sure that we're, we're doing the right thing. And just going back to, um, yeah, on our sponsors, like I was saying before, we, we, we certainly do have a lot of uh, long-term sponsors. Um, to name a, a couple, uh, Jigsaw Tackman Advisory, uh, SP Rigging, um, also Winston Hills Local Mall and uh, the Winston Hills Hotel and uh, probably final one would be Bankstown Sports. But also another quick mention as well is uh, is uh, Parramatta Leagues for all their support as well um, financially. So they've um, they've certainly been able to help us out over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, what uh, about- as a, as a, I was just going to jump in there as a local, I know the the Winstow's always the Winston Hills Hotel. The Winstow's always been um, associated with the club as long as I can remember. It's almost looked like a unofficial clubhouse with some of the shields and <laughs> trophies and, and what have you that are. On display in there, you can't miss those. <laughs> and, uh, Absolutely, my, my family's certainly been privy to the odd trip to Bankstown Sports as well. It's got a lot of great places to eat there. <clears throat> but uh, we'll start uh, wrapping things up. I won't keep you too much longer, mate, because I know you are a busy man. One of our favourite parts at the end of these chats is trying to connect people because we did talk about community in this discussion, how much it means towards a junior rugby league club. But if there's anyone out there who wants to be involved with Winston Hill, whether it's uh, playing, coaching, sponsoring, or even just volunteering, what's the best way they can get in touch with you guys? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we do have a pretty good website, uh, which has all of our contact details on there. So all the boards, names are mentioned up there, but uh, emails, obviously, always the easiest way. Uh, you can reach out through social media, but uh, there is a contact number on there, which will come through to me anyway, so you'll get me. Uh, but yeah, probably email or, or phone call. So winstonhillstigers.com. And from there, there's a, there's a join us page where you can look at uh, info at winstontigers.org plus the mailing plus the phone number and also the nice little Google map there in case you're wondering where the club is playing. So, no, good setup there mm-hmm. online. Thank you. And, uh, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. We, we love chatting with the junior football clubs that make up the Parramatta District and the Winston Hills Tigers are certainly no uh, exception to that rule. It's been a blast talking to you about both the history of the Tigers and your journey to the uh, present now. And that really cool connection with Queensland that and hopefully we can rekindle something there because 
uh, that that really is grassroots rugby league right there, isn't it? You know, not just being in your own community, but having a connection interstate to another club is very, very cool. Exactly. I mean, the, the players love it. Um, obviously, the trip away and going to all the theme parks is a big thing for them. But, uh, <laughs> but definitely playing a game against the Queensland side up there. It's uh, yeah, it's very passionate. It's good fun. Very well, enjoyed. And like we said, if you are in the Winston Hills areas or surrounds and want to be involved, make sure to go to the winstonhillstigers.com online and there you can get all your contact details sorted. Otherwise, mate, best of luck and hope we can catch up with you and touch base down the track. Absolutely, guys. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, following up. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Cheers, man. All the best. All right, 60s. We're close to closing the books on another episode of the tip sheet. But before we go, there is a little bit of housekeeping to do uh, for ourselves and for our listeners. Uh, usually, we'd be live from Jack's Bar and Grill in the post game of any home game for the Parramatta Eels. But this week, a little bit of a change, isn't there? Yeah, there's the Sounds West uh, festival that's been happening in Parramatta this week. They've got feature artists at the stadium as part of match day presentations and the Leagues Club are also hosting some of those artists uh, after the game and uh, that will be taking place, I believe, in Jack's Bar and Grill. Uh, so we won't be there. However, we will be on duties a little bit earlier in the in the uh, day, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast. Yes. Uh, you know, it's a massive, massive Saturday for the Parramatta Reels. Big triple header out at Combank Stadium kicking off with the New South Wales Cup into the season launch for the NRLW, followed by that crucial game against the Dogs for the NRL. So obviously we're going to be all over that. But yeah, we've got some cool action coming to you from the Leagues Club before the NRL and NRLW. So stay tuned for some um, snippets and, and bits and bobs out of that one. But yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good place to wrap up 60s, unless there's anything else to say this week. Oh, just a reminder that because it is Old Boys Day out at... Uh Bankwest Stadium, uh, sorry, Combank Stadium. Uh, we we do have the um, the former players doing a lap of honour before the game. So make sure you're obviously you'll all be over there having watched the New South Wales Cup into the NRLW. And so before the NRL, there'll be that lap of honour for the uh, Eels old boys. So make sure you're there. Give them a bit of a wave. Give them a cheer as they go around the ground. Yeah, plenty. Like I said, there's plenty to see out of Combank this week. Big triple header of football. Essentially, I mean, I don't think it's been officially badged Old Boys Day, but for all intents and purposes, it is Old Boys Day. So, yeah, lots and lots of great footy and footy adjacent stuff to see and be part of. So, catch you guys out there. Hope you enjoy a huge weekend of football. And we'll catch you in the next episode where we preview said games in the uh, Flag Cup, NRLW, and NRL. Geez, that's a big preview podcast, 60s. Yeah, it's a massive one coming up. All right, catch you guys in the next episode. Go you wheels.